In the year 1964, the Christine Gallery in Gothenburg, Sweden, exhibited four new paintings by a hitherto completely unknown artist by the name of Pierre Brasseau. Critics' opinions of the abstract avant-garde paintings were largely positive. One critic wrote that Brasseau painted with powerful, determined strokes, yet with the delicacy of a ballet dancer. But not all of the critics were so impressed. One claimed that the canvases were so primitive that even a monkey could do it. Well, the joke was on all but that one critic, because it turns out that Pierre Brasseau really was a monkey. He was a four-year-old chimpanzee. Journalist Daka Axelson came up with the idea for this hoax to see if critics could tell the difference between modern art and whatever the chimpanzee produced. And when his ruse was revealed, the critic who had gushed about Pierre's powerful strokes and balletic delicacy defended his review by saying, well, they were, after all, the best paintings at the exhibit, which doesn't say much for modern art, I suppose, at least in Sweden. What makes a piece of art authentic? This is a hoax. They are very common in the art world. There are two senses, I think, in which we can speak of the authenticity of a work of art. The first one connects the piece of art to the artist, and there are more sophisticated art hoaxes than the one that connected uh, to Pierre Brasseau. This involves uh, persons of actual skill who imitate Picasso or Rembrandt and try to pass off these paintings as by an actual master. The opposite of this kind of authenticity is a fake, right? The opposite of the other kind of authenticity would be something like insincerity or cynicism. It doesn't really come from the heart of the person. The person in some way is not telling the truth uh, about his intention. The opposite of this would be an authentic work of art involving a true intention, skill, and insight by the artist. We often speak of the greatest and most authentic works of art in this sense as inspired because they're filled with the spirit of the art itself somehow. They, they capture something that's true, uh, that we all recognize because we share in that spirit in some way. Somehow the artwork is channeling the artist's own encounter with the truth behind the passing images of everyday life. The artist perceives something that the rest of us don't and shows it to us with a skill and craft. And for this reason, artists are often considered prophets, witnessing to some aspect of the truth that the rest of us don't see until they show us. And of course, there are always false prophets. And so the authentic artist often needs the testimony of others to authenticate the seriousness of his purpose. He needs others who also have a profound understanding of the art, usually critics or historians or other artists, uh, to say, yes, this is for real. And I, I use this example a lot in music, uh, that uh, when I first got to college, I didn't think much of the music of Mozart. I thought it was boring. Uh, but people I trusted said, no, 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 you have to listen more carefully. And uh, now, brothers will tell you, I will say that if I had to choose the greatest composer of all time, it's probably Mozart. So these experts help us to separate out the true from the false, you know, the real from the fake, by training us to see and hear differently than we would have otherwise. And so we rely on testimony, unless we happen to be experts ourselves. And most of us are not experts in everything. You know. 
How does one become an expert? This is a long process of habituating oneself to the language of the art in question and the best and most insightful works within that medium, whether it be a Vermeer, Mozart, or Tolstoy. Those of us who haven't had the experience of studying war and peace closely depend on those who have to help us understand something about good novels in general. So we all rely on testimony to understand the world. This is actually a very astonishing fact. Uh, we don't pay enough attention to it, in my opinion. Pope St. John Paul II often noted that the virtue of faith leads inherently to a type of knowledge that can only be gained by the acceptance of someone else's testimony. So we believe in God because others have told us, first of all, that he exists, and we trust them. So if our parents say, yes, you have to pray to God, God is real, we say, okay. We rely on the testimony of the apostles and the prophets to know that Jesus really is the Son of God. In the iconography of churches, both in the East and in the West, Jesus is always flanked by his mother and John the Baptist, right? They're both entreating him, but they're also pointing to him. If you need something, ask him. If you're ever in any trouble, turn to the Son of God. Here he is. We're asking him for you. And it's interesting that during this season of Advent, the two persons we spend the most time thinking about conversing with are John the Baptist and Mary. They are the two most important witnesses in a certain sense. Mary is clearly a witness. You know, she was the one who knows the truth about the virginal conception. John's witness is also interesting, though. He spent the whole of his life as a kind of expert in the purity of heart, in the, in the discipline of the commandments of God, seeking God in the wilderness, seeking to bring God's people, Israel, back to fidelity to the covenant. Why? So that they would recognize the truth of Jesus' life when they saw it, right? So by long habituation to the truth of human life, of human behavior, of human aspirations, we can see this man, Jesus, and say, yes, that's him. It was these habits of virtue and goodness also that made John a reliable witness. People trusted him. He wasn't in it for himself. He was in it for the truth. And yet when he's imprisoned, his disciples um, are sent to Jesus to ask if he is authentically the Messiah. The fathers of the church were quite exercised by this passage. They were troubled by it a bit. Doesn't John know already? Uh, I find their explanation, actually, to be perfectly coherent. Yes, John does know. He's been proclaiming who Jesus is loud and clear for many months, maybe even years at this point. It's the faith of his disciples that has wavered, because John has been arrested. So John, the best man they know, wasn't saved by God. He's, he's arrested. He's going to be put to death. Didn't result in worldly success. Uh, he was easily overcome by Herod's soldiers. So this must have shaken the weaker souls among them, right? And interestingly, John, rather than saying, haven't I told you already? Don't you trust me? He sends the disciples, go, go see for yourself. Go ask him. And when Jesus receives them, he does something very interesting too. He does not bear witness to himself. He doesn't say, yes, I am the son of God. He appeals to the signs that have been worked through him. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. 
In the Gospel of the Apostle John, Jesus summarizes this approach in the same way. He says, even if you do not believe me, believe the works I do, that you may know that the Father is in me. So so Jesus is not testifying to himself. He's letting the Father, the Holy Spirit, and his works testify to him. And then letting the disciples of John the Baptist make their own decision. Is this a, does this seem like a plausible testimony? He's asking us to correlate our experience with those signs he's working. In some sense, Jesus is challenging us to become experts in the moral life. Uh, artists of the spirit, you know, a kind of virtuosi of living so that we can bear testimony, so that we recognize him and we can say with assurance, yes, the gospel is true. I know. Why is this given to us deep in the season of Advent, though? It is because Jesus has not stopped coming into the world, and we are in serious need of witnesses who see this Advent and point it out to others. We will become more effective witnesses to the extent that we habituate ourselves like good critics or experts to the language of the gospel, the language of the church, to the language of the human heart. And then we will resonate with the appearance of Jesus in the flesh. We'll be able to say, yes, Lord, you did that. Yes, I hear you. Like John leaping in his mother's womb at the nearness of God. Each of us baptized bear Christ in our bodies. So we can also imitate the other witness we'll hear more about next week, Mary, the mother of God. How? Well, as an expectant mother exercises extreme care for her body in order that the fragile child in her womb will suffer no neglect or injury, but will grow and come forth healthy as an infant, we too must take great care of this developing life of Christ inside of us, doing nothing that would extinguish this life, feeding ourselves with the nourishment of the scriptures and the sacraments and meditation on the mysteries of God, pondering them in our hearts like Mary did, so that we may bring forth the life of Christ in our own actions. And again, this will make our witness more and more authentic to the extent that we've experienced a curing of our own spiritual blindness by the light of Christ and the end of our spiritual deafness by the beauty of God's word that we have a sensitivity to things of the Spirit. And then when the wavering and fearful come to us, seeking strength and consolation, we can say authentically, be strong, fear not. Christ is coming, and the blind really do see. It really happens. The deaf really do hear. Those who are spiritually dead come back to life. And so let us be poor in spirit so that we may receive with joy the gospel preached to us, this world that is really dying to know the truth of Christ, let us not only be no scandal to that world, but let us seek to be true witnesses of Christ's coming.